On today's episode of Footnotes to a Novel, an interview with the novelist Elizabeth Gustova. Elizabeth is the critically acclaimed best-selling author of The Historian, The Swan Thieves, and most recently, The Shadowland. She is also the founder of the Elizabeth Gustova Foundation, which helps support creative writing in Bulgaria and the translation of contemporary Bulgarian literature into English, and which, through its annual Sizopol Fiction Seminar, brings writers from all over the world to Bulgaria. You can learn more about the fine work the Elizabeth Gustova Foundation is doing at www.ekf.bg. And now, Elizabeth Gustova. So, Elizabeth, thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to get to sit down with you and talk writing as we have for many years. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, when I was thinking about your work and and, and, and of the novelist writing today, I don't know of any writers who are able so deftly to blend real suspense, mystery, but also the literary. And by literary, I mean beautifully written, uh, beautifully rendered. Oh, thank you. That, that means a lot to me, coming from you in particular. Thank you. And I was thinking about who does that well, who's done that well. And I really have to go back to someone like Umberto Eco. The Name of the Rose. It's a novel that did, that masterfully blended uh, mystery, but also it's so beautifully written. And I think you're carving out your own place in contemporary literature in that way, too. Um, so I had to question, how important is mystery, suspense, those elements? How important is that to you as a writer? And is that something you seek out as a reader? You know, it's it's kind of funny. I did not know that how important that was to me as a writer until I I wrote my first novel, The Historian. And I I had written short stories before that, and I tried to write a novel or two before, but um, not not uh, nothing that I either finished or that turned out to be long enough to be a novel. And all of a sudden, when I found myself writing something. I knew I was going to want to finish and that felt like a big enough idea for a novel. I mean, I often think about how you need, even if a novel is a slim volume in the end, which mine are not, maybe unfortunately, but I, I think you need a big idea. Um, I just read a fairly slim volume of a novel by Michael Andaji and who deals a lot less in mystery and a lot more in the moment. He's much more a, a Virginia Woolf kind of writer in many ways. He's, he's dealing with consciousness, I think, in the moment. And that novel is not so very long. And this particular novel I read by him, but it has a big idea behind it. And I think you really need that. And for me, one of the biggest ideas is just, just personally, I don't mean for 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 other novels or other writers at all, but just for me personally, the idea of mystery, of things we can't figure out, of things we don't know at the beginning of the book, and of research itself is a very, very big idea. And I grew up in an academic family. So for academics, you know, the research is literally a matter of life and death. <laughs> because you do research for your living, 
and everything looks like a mystery and something to be researched. So I think I had it in the blood a little bit. But I also think there is no such thing as a novel without mystery. I think if if you could write a novel without mystery, nobody would ever read it. Because and I don't think it'd be possible actually. Um, it wouldn't be a possible write or read, literally, because even if mystery is not the focus of a novel, the things that are unknown draw us into the novel from the first sentence, whatever the whatever kind of prose we're looking at. So I'm not sure it's possible to write a novel that's not a mystery novel, but but mine are my work has drawn me into a feeling of um, especially of the the kind of amazing complexity of looking at the past through research. And um, I know that's something that's very close to your heart too. And it's, I just can't imagine writing without looking both at mystery and the past. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned, you know, your books uh, are deeply researched, the historian, the swan thieves, and your latest novel, the Shadowland. They all feel deeply researched. They're big books. I mean, they're literally big books, but they're also big books in the sense that they're full of ideas, they're full of history and place. And so how do you typically approach your subject in terms of research? Do you sit with an idea, letting it steep? Do you attack it methodically like a, well, a, a historian? I, I like to think uh, I attack it methodically, but I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> and um, to me, as for so many writers, research is part of the pleasure of writing. And I, I think that uh, the, when we write, when we write, thinking about the past, um, we always end up doing research, but. There's so many different ways to do that. I, I always think about Edward P. Jones, who wrote The Known World. And he, he I'm sure you know this story. He says that he had a kind of initial vision for that book. And he sat down and began to write it without doing any research on the, the history that it involved. Obviously, he'd read about it. He'd heard about it. It haunted him. Um, there were particular stories and specifics from history that already haunted him. But he says that he didn't start researching until way, way into that project and, and that it was more, really more a matter of fact checking. And that may be an example of someone who had already sort of embraced a subject. I know, I also, I know novelists who, historical novelists who, um, sit down for two years, they learn everything they can, everything they think they're going to need to know about a topic. But um, I think one of the wisest things I've ever heard about doing research for historical fiction, I heard from you, actually. And, um, and I promised our viewers that we didn't arrange this little trick ahead of time. It's totally spontaneous. <laughs> and, and totally true. I think about this every few months. Um, you said once that you believed that, and if when you do research for his 
historical fiction, you always do it twice. You, that, that we all end up doing it twice. And I think that is so true. So for me, I tend to pick a topic I already know something about. I usually think I know more than I do. <laughs> I'm usually really deluded about that. And I end up, I end up with a huge research project anyway. But obviously, you have to be interested in something before you're going to commit the, the feel of, I'm going to write a whole novel. And then, like you, I tend to, um, if, I've done, if I do research at the beginning, I still have to do it again in either after a first draft of the project, because you don't know until you're writing what you're going to need to know. You may know um, the basic history of the rise of Impressionism in France, but you really don't know what you're going to put into your story until you're way in there. And um, I'll use that as an example, actually. I was thinking about that before our conversation. So my second novel, The Swan Thieves, was, was about the rise of Impressionism in France. Acme subject, by the way, that um, we're, we're all kind of sick of, you know, the Impressionists are... I think we don't even buy tote bags and most with the, with impressionist paintings on them as a society anymore because we got so sick of it. And, um, and of course, after 20th century art and history, the impressionists look contained. And I wanted to go back and I wanted to kind of peel back the canvas moment when they were radical and people tried to destroy their canvases at, ex at, at their first exhibitions um, and throw, threw things at, at their work, uh, literally, and, and just found, it, found them scandalous. And that, that's very curious to me, that point of view can change so much socially. So I, I started reading. I thought, well, I've always wanted to write a book about an artist or artists. I love art history. I started doing reading. I chose the Impressionist movement kind of deliberately for the reasons I just outlined. And then I realized I knew nothing about them, you know, the usual uh, discovery. And then I was reading along, um, reading journals and letters written by them. And they, they tended to, like many artists, they tended to have turbulent lives and, um, and they were invoking social change in a lot of ways. They were painting not only beautiful beaches, uh, which was a big moneymaker for them, um, sort of tourist scenes without the tourists, but they also were painting trains and factories and shipyards. And um, they really paved the way for the 20th century's non-idyllic art. So I started to learn about that. And then I, I learned that one of the six original Impressionists from the, the original Impressionist group that put on the first exhibition in Paris in the 1870s was a woman. And she is let, she's left off many, many general lists, even, um, even scholarly lists. Uh, and she was actually in that first um, and the second exhibition. And I was fascinated by that. I, I wondered, you know, I'd heard her name, uh, Berthe Morisot is her name, and she is very famous. Many people 
know this name, but she doesn't appear in some very, very important lists, unbelievably, in the early 21st century. So that then I realized that even though I didn't want to write about her and her life in a biographical way, not at all, I, I didn't want her to be a character in my book. But I knew I would have a female painter from that era, and I suddenly realized, oh, of course, I can use the details of her life to inform my my character. And that's a way into accuracy as well. Um, so uh, reading her letters and reading biographies of her, I realized that one of the reasons she had been left out of these lists was that she wasn't very visible socially. And in that group, she did not sit around in cafes with the five men involved because she was a middle-class married woman with a child and a lot of respectability. Her husband was very encouraging of her painting, which made him unusual for his day. But she wasn't going to be seen sitting around in cafes. She actually socially, in her milieu, she, she really could not go out and paint alone in a landscape. Um, and French society was a, a lot more conservative in that way than American society. So there were American Impressionists who were women who did. So from her life and letters and the details of what she lived, I was able to draw a lot of um, accurate background. And later people asked, is this Bert Morisot in your book? And I always had to say, no, it's not. Uh, this is my character. I imagined her. She has a very different personality. She has a different life. Um, but from Bert Morisot, I got all of this wonderful information. And, and so you were doing research before you even set out to write, and you were doing research while you were writing and, and perhaps even after a first draft? Is that, is that what you mean? Exactly, yeah. And I, I'll confess, after a second and fourth draft, yes. and, and while I was proofing. <laughs> yes, I have that same experience, too. Else, yeah, something else. Yes, I'm glad to know I wasn't the only one doing that. Oh, I don't think so. As you say, there's always something else. And I remember something, um, you and I had a conversation once years ago, and we were talking about this, the idea of research and, and the writing. And those seem to me to be two different modes that mm -hmm. we work in. Mm -hmm. and, and you said something about the research as a kind of escape from the writing. You could spend an entire morning tracking down the answer to some question that maybe comes up in a line, you know, one line, but we could spend, and I remember you saying that you spend an entire morning telling yourself that you're working as you're tracking down this question. And it, it resonated with me because I've done this. I did this. I've done the same thing. A question comes up is I remember when I was working on the archivist story, I had a question about, or there's a scene where characters are driving in a car and I wondered if they would imagine them listening to the radio because that's something we do in our contemporary times. But then I, of course I had to find out if there were radios in cars in 19 in Russia in 1937, 38. And that was my morning. So <laughs> yes. So that's, that's it. You spend an entire morning. So is there kind of a tension Sometimes between this, these two modes, the research and the writing? 
Oh, yeah. And I think there's a, a for me, there's a, a terrible tension for, between those things. And um, I think this has all become a more difficult problem for writers since the invention of the internet, because now it's all too easy to follow a rabbit down the rabbit hole and, and feel, I think there's a fine balance too. Um, sometimes when you follow the rabbit, maybe not for days on end, but sometimes if you follow the rabbit with a good hunch, you are, you actually stumble on something that you end up using that's very important, that seems random at the time, or that you weren't looking for. I think most importantly, that you weren't looking for. And I'm sure you had that experience too. And um, it's, I think it's also possible to over-research a book. It's possible to try to become an expert, which um, few of us can ever claim to be in any in any subject area we use. And that's why I think it's so important to seek out experts. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, probably. Um, but I also think that if you follow that rabbit and you do it in, in good faith and not because you're, you're simply curious about something you would be curious about as a person, if you're curious as a writer or curious for your character, then I think that's good, can be good instinct. And I'll, I'll give you a little example from my own work um, that was a very funny moment for me and possibly for the total strangers around me, I'm not sure. But I was, in a, I was in a bookstore in Philadelphia while I was writing The Historian, my, my first novel. And I was looking through a guidebook to Romania. And it, this was well after the change from communism and Western travelers were starting to kind of go, it was kind of an off the beaten track sort of guidebook. And, and going to Romania as a, in, in those days, this was in the um, early 90s, I guess, mid 90s. It was definitely an off the beaten track for, for Western travelers anyway. So I was looking through this guidebook and I was looking at um, sites relating to the history of the real Dracula, who is the research topic in that book. And, and also the topic uh, that the researchers who are characters in the book are, are investigating. So I wanted to see if I was getting details right about the different sites you can still see and where the original Dracula, Vlad III, lived, uh, worked as a ruler, um, territory he, he lost, took and lost, um, castles he, castle he built. And all of a sudden, I saw a detail about his burial, which I had never read, even though I had read quite a bit about him. Um, I think actually I had read it years before, but I had forgotten or, or the significance of it had eluded me. And um, I noticed that there's a legend that he was buried without his head. And at that moment, I, I stood up, I dropped the book on the floor. I hadn't bought it yet, you know, sort of upset my tea at the Borders bookstore uh, cafe. This was before we had a lot of Indies to drink coffee in. 
and people around me looked askance. And that was the one book I remember. That was the one book I bought on Romania um, that year. Later, I bought others, and I did a lot of library research once I had a university library to go to. But that moment, I bought that book for that moment because that little detail changed the entire plot of the central section of my novel. And I won't, you know, I have a horror of plot spoilers. I know that's very shallow, but um, so I won't tell you how and why, but it's. uh, (laughs) Absolutely don't do that. Yeah. Don't tell us Elizabeth. And I was, I was reading paragraphs about stuff I thought I already knew or stuff that was just tourist, um, you know, in a tourist guidebook. I wasn't sure why I was doing it. And there was the detail that changed several years of work um, on the book for me. So I think there's a balance in that tension. Sometimes you, you make great discoveries too. Absolutely. And you, you, you talk about curiosity. I, I, imagine, I think curiosity is sort of the first and the last necessary tool for the writer. I mean, we want to write, we do the research because we want to write credibly about a particular subject, but I think we write, I imagine, I know in, in my case, I write about things because I want to know more about them. And it's almost as if every time we sort of set out to write about something, it's like going back to college. <laughs> it's like going to graduate school again or something. We're not going to become experts at the particular subject, but it is important, I think, to see, particularly historical writing, it, it is important to see the world through the eyes of the people living in that place and time. Don't you think? Well, I think it's important, and, and I also think it's not possible. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's this strange mix of persuading yourself that you are, are truly in that, uh, in what you imagine this time to be. And of course, so much of that comes down to character. And, you know, um, if you have, uh, if you're writing about the 1870s in Paris, you're going to get a very different Paris and research a very different Paris. If you're writing about um, a child living on the streets and uh, from a book about Berthe Morisot and her comfortable bourgeois household. Um, but, you know, I think one of the re- when I look back on it in a really simplistic way, I think one of the reasons I wanted to be a writer at all or, be- or tried to become a writer um, starting, especially in a, in a more serious way, starting in my early teens, I'd always loved to scribble stories and imitations of books. But I think I became a writer really because I was so frustrated by that phenomenon in life where you're walking along a sidewalk or walking past other people and you hear only the beginning of a sentence. You know? And I used to write those down. And I know many, many writers have this exact experience. Um, two women are walking past you and one says, well, at that moment, if I could have told him that I would, and then they're gone, and you think, wait, who is he? I mean, if I could have told him I was going to quit my job, if I could have told him I had decided to cut his head off while the children were watching, you know, it could be anything, anything. 
And to, I think I became a writer of fiction to try to answer those questions and to finish those sentences in my own head. And I, I do think that comes back to curiosity and especially an intense curiosity we all have about people and other people. And um, that, you know, that, that leads into something I think is a really big consideration, uh, not only for all fiction, but in a special way in fiction about history, uh, about point of view. Um, I was thinking about this a lot the other week um, as I work on a new novel. And I think the decisions about point of view, of course, those decisions are crucial for every writer of fiction. They determine who sees the world you're portraying, um, whom whom the reader identifies with, or doesn't identify with. And those, all of those point of view decisions have special resonance when you're writing about history. Because when you're writing serious fiction about history, you're not writing just a costume piece. You know, we've all, we've all um, seen what happened to the, the um, reputation of historical fiction over the years because of the costume piece genre. And um, I actually, when people say to me, uh, you're a historical novelist, right? I still kind of flinch a little because, and I say, well, I'm a novelist. Um, and I write about my, the way I imagine the past based on a whole lot of research. That's the best way I can sum it up. But the point, point of view is so incredibly important in historical writing because if you are writing first person, narrative or a close third person you have that classic limitation of course of what the character would would see or think of or notice and if you're trying on top of that to display a vision of a world and the details of that world and things that are different about that world then you have a very very hard road to hoe and I think that's one of the fascinations for me about historical fiction. And I'll, I'll give you two little examples, if I may, about uh, being, uh, from, from people's wonderful novels, um, the way I've noticed this working. So John Fowles, the French lieutenant's woman, incredible uh, three-dimensional book about a world he learned through reading, research, and, and, and through going, being in the places where it's set, but it's set, uh, you know, 100 years and, and more, more than 100 years before he was writing. In that book, he does a lot of kind of postmodernist omniscience, and it allows him to do things like describe the Uh, the dress of fashionable woman who is taking advantage of new discoveries in the mid-19th century, a brilliantly colored colored dye that never existed before for clothing. So from from a pretty small range of colors um, and then some very expensive colors only a few people could afford, suddenly with the Industrial Revolution in the the mid-19th century, a British woman can wear magenta and peacock and 
emerald and bright yellow and and there's a fashion for it and out in broad daylight that woman getting dressed is not going to think ah today i'm wearing peacock and and um in 19 for and sorry 1845 that amazing discovery of this dye um invention of this dye has allowed me to dress in peacock and I think I'll wear that down to the pier and have a big scene with my fiance. No, Fells made this decision to write omnisciently. So then he can step back and he does it in this very uh, bold postmodern way um, that, that harks back to the Victorians actually in Dickens where the author says, now let me tell you about um, fashion in this, in this moment and how, where it came from and what its history is. And I tend to write in, I, I have a lot of timidity about writing omniscient, omniscience. And uh, maybe I'll get over that by the time I kick the bucket. I hope so. But maybe not. It's been a long time. I, and I, you know, I really feel like I need a point, a 12-step point of view program because I feel so wedded to first-person narrative and documents and I, I made a huge, big old effort in my last novel, The Shadowland, to break out into third person. Um, and, and I had to make, mostly make it a very close third person and different people's stories in order to sort of tolerate it emotionally. But, but that kind of point of view limits you a lot. So here's my second example. Um, you mentioned before we got started, you mentioned interviewing Peter Ho Davies, whose work I admire a great deal. Um, in, and in his book set in World War II in Wales, um, I, I remember listening to him be on a panel or interviewed on stage about that book. And there was a, um, there was a discussion um, about describing a radio and I think perhaps he had actually described it and another writer on stage said um uh, one option is simply to say not to say the uh the radio with its long wires or um and big knobs and I don't think Peter Ho Davies described his radio quite that way but this discussion came up about what do you do what do you do with an object in a historical novel, especially when you're in close third person uh, or in first person. Um, and as I recall, his, that novel by him um, uses several close third person points of view. You're not always in the same character's head. But this other writer said, well, one option is you just say uh, uh, the, barman, the barman on the radio. And we were all like, wow. That is so simple. Yes. And, um, and, you know, for me, that radio, and I suspect for you, Travis Holland, that radio would be a full morning of research, right? Yes. You know, did um, when were those radios invented and what was available during the war? And would that have been sitting there since 1929 because it's Wales and it's rural and it's far and there's not much money. It's not a new radio. So, uh, that made a huge impression on me. And I've tried, um, and, uh, you know, Peter Ho Davies in that book, I, I can't remember what he did with his radio, but the, you get such an exquisite and often simple picture of 
where there's room for your imagination about what it's like to walk these roads in this village um, in Wales. And then you get just, you get a few details that really put you there. And um, I remember uh, actually in the archivist story, you had this wonderful line near the, in, in the first chapter, I think, where one of the characters goes over to the electric samovar. And um, that was, that actually came up in a discussion with a lot of people because that is such a perfect detail. So it's not just a samovar, you know, anyone who's been around Eastern Europe a little sort of knows what a samovar is, or we can look it up. But a samovar sounds very old fashioned, very 19th century. And then um, all of a sudden it's an electric samovar. It is progress. It is communism. It is, you know, by God, we're not going to have this archaic peasant, you know, old, old city samovars. We're going to have an electric samovar because we are on the fire land. And that, that's what I aspire to. That kind of, um, I'm not going to over-describe it but I'm going to get there somehow through research. Yeah. And you, and you, it's, it's funny. You mentioned, uh, Oh, by the way, that electric samovar, that was a morning of research. (laughs) (laughs) I think I spent a, a, an entire morning trying to answer that, you know, um, how, how would they, you know, light the samovar they're in a, an office building, are they going to actually light the samovar? So yeah, that was a whole morning. But it's interesting you you talk about Peter and the radio because that was something that came up in our discussion. And I think he called it the backlight problem or the backlight radio problem or issue. And it was, I think someone else mentioned it to him. An editor had mentioned it to him mm-hmm. because Peter said something like she, she, the character turned, switched on the backlight knob of the radio and he felt that was too much. Peter felt as if looking back, even that small thing. And I know we're getting into the weeds here as writers. It's, it's very technical, but, but these are the kinds of questions that we think about because as you say, and as Peter himself said, would a character living in the 1940s, when they go to turn on the radio, would they think I'm, I'm switching on the backlight knob here or would they just think i'm switching on the radio right and And that's such a question of point of view and i think that's that um that's obviously that incident is going to go down in literary history (laughs) um (laughs) but i uh that's wonderful that it came up elsewhere but i think what you're saying goes right back to our discussion of point of view because in that moment uh, you're viewing in Peter's book, you're viewing that you're, you're already in, in a close third person, if I recall correctly. In the moment with the electric samovar in the beginning of your book, um, we are still, as I recall, correct me, you're the perfect person to tell me I'm wrong on this. Um, we're still, the camera is still moving in on the scene and we're not, we've met our characters and or two of them, but we're not yet committed to someone's point of view. Not quite. It's still a very delicately, you know, you're still painting the scene. You're, we're with someone's consciousness, 
but there's a, a wonderful sense of the camera is still moving in. And by chapter two, you know, we're fully in that consciousness and we're going to stay there. And um, so I'd be interested to know if the electric samovar had shown up in chapter nine, would you have said electric? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I it's a, I think I do agree with you that it, we were still moving in in terms of the camera was moving closer in that first chapter. I don't know how I would handle that would have handled that in say a chapter nine because um, it it's frankly a point of view and the way we've been talking about it is something I struggle with. I mean, to this day when I'm writing about. Um, particularly history or particularly a place that feels so different from my own life um, point of view becomes uh, it, it almost you measure it down to a kind of microscopic level or obsessive level it it becomes very difficult to find that that line um, for the reasons that we we talk about and and I have found in a strange way we're talking about research and all the immense research that we put into it a lot of my writing is then about leaving that re- don't let that research show on the page mm-hmm. in a strange in a, in a strange way rather let it be invisible yeah let, let yeah. it be yeah yeah exactly let it because what i realized writing that book was my characters wouldn't see their world the way I see their world with a kind of wide open amazement of everything feels new and fresh to them. It was the same thing every day, just like we live our lives. We're living in a historical moment right now. And yet we don't see it in the same way someone 20 or 30 years from now will see this moment. Yes, absolutely. And you know, um, I'd like to, to add something about research if I may, that, goes back to some of your original question um, about how how we do research for historical fiction. Um, I think of research for fiction, and I, I think it's very well with your sense that the best use of research is an invisible use, that it's something that feels organic. You know, it's, it's like the actor's craft. Um, something totally artificial that looks natural and um, in, in great acting. Research for historical fiction, for me, it, I, I have always found that it needs to be kind of 360 degrees that, that I need because of the nature, that nature of wanting to make it somehow seem organic on the page. I need to have many, many different kinds of sources and, um, for all of my books, I've um, not all my my three books. I have um, just really, really tried to do three hundred and sixty degrees. I have always done a lot of that classic library research, you know, that we're talking about. That it's like uh, you read primary sources, you read secondary sources. I also like to read novels that were either written in the period and the the milieu, the world I'm writing about, um, or or other people's novels about those times, unless I think that'll run interference somehow. 
And, but I also like to look at old photographs there and newspaper articles. And, um, you know, some of that is, is again, looking at primary sources. And if, if there are still people alive who remember those times, I like to interview them, not necessarily experts, but people who knew a place or, you know, uh, went to a particular university or at, the, at that right time. Um, and with my first book and my third book, I looked at food a lot. Um, a friend of mine, after she read The Historian, said, I liked it. There's an awful lot of food in it, isn't there? And, um, and it was true. I had tried to express culture through food, and so I cooked some of those dishes. I'm no um, cook to write home about, but I, I just wanted to see what it was like to make them. Um, for that book, I also found, met someone by accident in, in a lecture, uh, a lecture on a totally different topic overheard this person talking about Istanbul and having grown up there. And I ended up interviewing him. He had left Istanbul to come to medical school in the U.S. the year my American characters arrived in Istanbul. And he was able to tell me something I hadn't been able to find out, even from, from old photographs or from uh, films or movies filmed on location. Um, which was what it's really what people were wearing on the street in Istanbul at that time. I'd gotten a little bit of a sense from films of the period, but there's there aren't a lot of films filmed on location that you can just sort of pull up from Istanbul from 1954. They're just not floating around everywhere. So he was able to tell me this is the Istanbul I knew and loved and left at the age of 25 or whatever. And so people are experts in what they live. Um, and also, um, I think it's really very helpful to, to interview experts on um, expert profession, professionals. People have professions. And you and I were talking about that earlier. I, inter I, I worked with a, a historian who helped me learn a lot about the Balkans um, and pointed me toward readings. But, I, but he also said to me at one point, he read part of the draft, which was very kind in my first book. And he said, um, the historian characters are, are all right, but you need to make them fight with each other more. You know, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be in each other's throats about these little, you know, these little questions that, that their whole dissertation turns on, you know, make them nasty. And um, <laughs> my historians are all getting along really well. So that was, that was very helpful. And, you know, it's, it's that, um, that unexpected sort of, as you say, with the historian telling you to sharpen the blade a little bit between the historians and um, th these sort of unexpected moments when you're interviewing folks. I remember I was interviewing uh, people who had been sent to the gulags through the Andrei Sakharov Foundation when I was in Moscow doing research for the archivist story. And none of the my book is actually set in the gulag. We don't go there. But I had this opportunity to speak to people who had lived during that time, um, and they were so generous to speak to me. And I remember an unexpected thing came up. Again and again, I would be 
talking to these folks who had been arrested and they would be telling me about their arrest, their interrogation. And multiple times they told me that the person who arrested them or interviewed them or some officer was one, it was absolutely beautiful, like a movie star, handsome guy or a a beautiful woman, uh, stunning to this day. Uh, decades, decades later, these folks were in their 80s and 90s, and they remembered the sort of incongruousness of this beautiful, handsome movie star. This guy looked like a movie star interviewing them. And I was so struck by that. I was so struck. And it was something I would have never encountered in a, in a history book, reading Robert Conquest or anything. It was just a, a human detail that stuck with me and it actually, I ended up using it. I had a, a character who was a, an NKVD officer, very handsome, looks like a movie star. And he even has a flaw, a slight flaw in his looks that actually makes him even more handsome in a strange way, something that makes him memorable. Um, and that was something that was completely unexpected that came out of talking to people. And uh, last I guess we'll finish up here. You've been so wonderful to talk to me, Elizabeth. Are you, uh, I imagine you're working on something now. Are you, uh, how's the research going with that? Are you conducting interviews? Um, I, I am a little bit. I mean, um, it's, uh, yes, I am. I have been. And of course, in this period, I've been doing that more through email or talking with people on the phone. Um, but one thing uh, I, I'm writing about the world of the theater, as I've told you, and uh, one thing in addition to to collecting people's stories about the theater and and different um, sort of eerie and strange things that happen in theater, um, happen to actors, and in addition to reading, again, a lot of primary sources, letters, journals, uh, watching movies that are set in the world of the theater um and before COVID-19 going to uh, plays and and um I also took uh two semesters of an acting class myself and um I would never put me on stage I just want to say but I it was what I wanted to see I did get to see which was an acting teacher in the role of director directing little scenes in our class and, and directing people's lines. And I, I just wanted to see and feel that in real life, what it felt like to be directed. So, you know, the cat sat on the mat. No, 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 no. Step forward to the front of the stage and think about that cat. That cat. That cat. Yes. And I, I wasn't trying to reproduce a particular personality, but... I had a wonderful teacher in that situation and I got to see, I got to feel what it feels like to be, to have some model gestures and in a very tiny way direct, direct you. And because some of my main characters are actors, I, I felt I needed to see that from the inside. And for me, it was kind of a parallel activity with um, going to be in the studio with painters to write the Swan Thieves and following people who I know who paint around on landscape painting trips. And even though that's, that is contemporary uh, to our time, 
some of those, a few of those things are universal and, and those, the feelings that go with them and you can extrapolate um, carefully. It, I mean, accuracy is important to me, um, but getting in, I guess that comes down to that more universal part of getting inside the head and heart of someone experiencing those things in any era. Well, that's a, a great place to sort of end it. Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Kostova, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. Thank you, Travis. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful treat. Thank you. My thanks to Elizabeth Kostova. It was a great pleasure getting a chance to talk to her. And I hope you'll check out her work. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Take care.